0: Let's open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be dropping down to the last two verses. Um, Sorry. I don't know why that does that sometimes. Me and my... So... Let's just jump in. First Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 32. Paul, of course, was closing up. He says, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Paul ends this chapter by admonishing all of us not to live for our own profit, but the profit of many. Paul gave himself as the example, even as I please all men in all things. Never make the mistake of what Paul's talking about as being a man pleaser. It's not what he's saying at all. Because some have fallen into that problem, you know, and, and, and thinking that's what he's talking about. He's not at all. But sometimes it can be, and especially in the ministry, it can be very easy to offend people. I'm speaking from personal experience on this one. And living in the time that we live in, everybody's offended by anything anyway. Matter of fact, I, I, I have wondered, and I was as I was putting my notes together, I thought, I wonder what the Apostle Paul would think if he lived today. You know, my lens, you know. I mean, because everybody is offended by anything you say. And because, and especially even within the body of Christ, and why it happens in the body of Christ is because so many people are so... Uh, ignorant, and of course that means they don't know, doctrinally. And when doctrinal ignorance is prevalent, then offense is going to be prevalent. Why? Being easily offended is an earmark, and we covered this a little bit, about you know being an infant in Christ and being a babe in the Lord. And of course, we're living in that era. People are just, I was listening, to I don't remember who it was, um, a young man, and of course he was just on the news, and he, uh, he, I think he was a soldier. Um, but he was a, an officer, and, and he was talking about the problem that we have today within our society uh, is that our young'uns, the, the children that we're seeing, have never been taught, unfortunately, and we've got nobody to blame but ourselves, that you know, they've never been taught what it is to be an American, what it is to be you know, civil liberty, you know, th- those type of things, and really understand them. And so they've grown up with no appreciation for such things, and they don't, they don't get it. That's why you see them you know, parading all over the place with the, you know, socialism's great and let's go that route. Just craziness, you know, and, and, and stuff that you know, 50 years ago would have been unheard of. Maybe not even that long. But within the body of Christ, we're seeing it too, because now you're seeing people who are just not taught. And it's the same problem. Of course, in a secular sense, we see it in our nation. we got these children who are going crazy and, and willing to accept anything. I mean, do you realize that, you know, this last election I think we elected, there's uh, two, two, two women who are Muslims. Um, one of them, is so, I don't know whether it was one of them, but another woman who's the youngest woman ever ever elected to Congress is a socialist. I mean, it's just nuts. And you're going, Wow. But look at what's going on in the body of Christ. You see the correlation between the two because unfortunately the church is having no effect on society anymore. We're not really winning people to Christ because we're not teaching anything. And so the church is going the same way. They're willing to accept or to do anything. So Paul's statement here, he says, give no offense. You know, what he means is purposefully. And so often you know, we can argue for the sake of arguing. Sometimes we want to just stir people up or put your finger into beehive, so to speak, and see what kind of reaction you get when you stir them up. Paul said, don't do that. You know, we're looking for common ground, and that's really what it is. You're just looking for common ground. Paul said, you know, to the, to the Jews, I became a Jew. To the Gentiles, I became a Gentile. Not that he was engaging in such things. Paul had left the law. He understood what it was. You know, he was the author of the gospel of grace but at the same time, his desire was to win them to the Lord. So he was looking for common ground. And that's really what we ought to be doing. I have no idea what that thing's doing. So, but anyway, he goes on though. And so even though he says that, he tells us not to, you know, to, to uh, make an offense, but to please all men and all things, not seeking our own profit, but the profit of many that they might be saved. And if you take a note, you ought to underline that they might be saved because that was really what the bottom line was. Then he moves right on to 1 Corinthians and look at verse 1. He says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now today there are those, if you said, be a follower of me (laughs) would take that as an arrogant statement. you know, But not Paul. Because what he's telling them, and, and of course he's speaking to the Corinthian church who had issues, that their desire ought to be to win people to Christ. You know, it, as far as you know, trying to reach out to them, as far as not offending, as far as those types finding common ground, the bottom line was to win people to Christ. Paul told the Corinthians to be followers of him. You know, in the Greek that word, and some of your Bibles might even say imitator. You know, be an imitator of me. This is what it means. It means a mimicer is what it means. So, what are we to imitate? Like I said, Paul's example was what he said, was to seek others' profit, not his own. Today, in Christendom, and it's not just today, this is something that's been around for a long time, unfortunately there's many in the ministry who do seek their own profit, and they seek lots of it. You know, money seems to be the issue, the driving force, and and, you know, back, when you go back to church history, and you look at our country especially, when churches began to be established. And the rule was to become incorporated. I think that was a mistake. You know, and, and most churches are, and don't get me wrong, most churches are. Be them denominational or non-denominational, they're all incorporated. And, you know, they actually, we we do our boards and we have to keep minutes and we have to do those things and and act as a corporation. That's a mistake. And I think you know, it has turned us to, to, to the point where we look at church as a business sometimes. And a lot of people don't have a problem with that, but I think the Lord has a problem with it. It puts us in a very vicarious situation, I think. And we've moved from the realm of spirituality into doing things in, in a material sense and, and it just really shouldn't be that way. And then you have, you know, the issue of pastors, you know, and pastors have become more of a paid occupation. Now listen, the Bible is very clear that a workman's worthy of his hire. You don't tread or muzzle the ox that treads out the corner. There's nothing wrong with that. But so many of them see it. I remember years ago, and a good friend of mine, you might be watching tonight, and, and uh, uh, Rick, don't get mad at me. I'm just sharing an old story. You know, uh, me and, me and a, a brother of mine uh, in the Lord, who uh, the Lord is using greatly uh, down south, um, in our early years, back when we were just puppies in Christ, and I'm talking you know, 30 years ago now or better, um, you know, he was the one who came to me and he said, hey, let's, uh, let's go to Bible college. And it was like, oh, okay. You know, why not? So <laughs> we, went, we went down to uh, Circleville and, and applied. And, and, uh, but Circleville, you know, when they gave us the application, they had a, they had a, a question on it. And one of the questions was, was, had you ever, now whether they do this now, I don't know. This has been many years ago. One of the questions was, have you ever or do you believe in speaking in tongues? And, of course, I thought, well, the Bible teaches it. So I said yes. Well, they didn't want to talk to me after that. And uh, Rick, uh, of course, went ahead and he went there. And I have no idea. Gang. I have no idea. So one day, one day he tells me and he uh wanted me to go back and, and to, to redo it. And I said, hey, yeah, look, bro, you know, it's, it's just, it's not me, you know. And he says, but they have such a great retirement. And thank you. Now, whether that helps or not, I don't know. But he said, they have such a great retirement. And I remember at the time, of course, we were young in the Lord. And so a lot of times you say a lot of dumb things when you don't know much Bible. But I thought about it. It's something I, 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 I it, it's resonated with me since. And it's like, Wow. They have a great retirement. And this is the problem, I think, within the hierarchy of Christendom today within denominationalism and sometimes even non denominationalism. Because why? We look at it as a job. It's, it's got a retirement plan. I go, well, it does have a retirement plan. Jesus is great. You know, the fact is, when it comes to walking by faith, the Bible says, I've never seen a righteous forsaken nor a seed baking bread. But nobody wants to walk by that. You know, everybody wants to, they want something more permanent, something more tangible to fall back on. Not necessarily a bad idea, I'm not saying that, I'm just saying I think it has tainted the body of Christ, I think it has messed up our view on how church is actually done. And I don't think it's what Paul had in mind. Paul says he didn't seek his own profit but he sought the profit of many. His, His purpose was to edify the church and to make the church whole and to make the church knowledgeable and mature in Christ. And so he goes on here and look at verse 2. He says, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. So Paul gave the Corinthians credit for at least remembering him in all things and for keeping the traditions, because that's what he means by ordinances, that he had delivered unto them. And in this, they had been pretty faithful. And just to make a little note of tradition there is nothing wrong with tradition. Tradition's actually good. There's nothing wrong with it. The only problem with tradition is when we elevate that to the status of God's will or God's law, which happens to be the case. I remember a, a fellowship years ago, me and my wife was attending. And we were in a transition between ministry things and we were just seeking the Lord's will and what He would have us to do. But we were attending this, this church, and I won't mention any names, and uh, one of their traditions was to have people stand and sit, stand and sit. You know, like on the it was at every third or some stanza of a hymn, everybody would stand. And, I mean, it just seemed weird to me. It seemed very Catholic in their practice, and I thought, wow, this is odd, something I wasn't used to. So I remember going to the pastor, who I knew very well, and, and I said, what's, uh, what's the deal? He goes, oh, I don't know. He said, they've been doing it ever since I've been here. He said, this is something that they've always done. I said, but why? And he couldn't give me a reason. And I thought, oh, well, I'm not really down with that, to be honest with you. I will stand for the Word of God. I mean, I'm not, you know, my knee isn't as good as it used to be, so bouncing like a pogo stick during worship wasn't something I was really good with. So I decided to set during worship. And after about two weeks of that, (laughs) next thing I know I get one of their guys coming to me. And he starts going and, 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 and uses the term rebellious. Whoa, brother. I said, what are you talking about? You better crack a Bible and you better give me chapter and verse. What are you talking about? So you have elevated your tradition to the status of God's law. See, that's the problem with it. When we think, but there's, in and of itself, is there anything wrong with jumping? Oh no, you want to rise every third stance and do it. But when you expect everybody to follow your tradition, because somehow if they don't then they're in rebellion against God, then you got a problem. So, But these guys were keeping whatever Paul had given to them and there's nothing wrong with that. Tradition's not necessarily bad, it can be good. We just need to keep it in perspective. It's just tradition. Believe me, the the Jews, if you ever want to know what it is to be an Orthodox Jew, watch Fiddler on the Roof. I like the song. You know, why do we do what we do? It's tradition. We have no idea, you know, but it's tradition. You know, we've just been doing it that way, and that's the way we will always do it. But in Christendom, we might want to rethink that. Look at verse 3. He says, but I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ, Hmm. and the head of every woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying having his head covered dishonoreth his head. Paul's going to get into some very strange ideas now. Some things that maybe some of you have been going, you know, if you've studied through this, maybe you scratched your head a little bit and went, what was he talking about? Well, Paul, at this particular moment, he's kind of establishing a chain of command. He's laying it out. You know, the word head here Uh, in this particular context, conveys the idea of authority is what he's talking about. It's the authority. And authority matters. It just does, especially within the body of Christ. And when we're dealing with the issue of pastors and elders and deacons, but that's a whole other sermon. We won't get into that tonight. But it conveys that idea of authority. And so, you know, to be the authority over the wife is the man, he says, and Christ is the authority over the husband. And God is the authority over Christ. Now, when you say something, like Paul just did, that the husband is the authority over the wife, in the context of the 21st century, that raised the cockles up on some people. okay? Because we're living way past the time of ERA. You know what that is, right? ERA, the Equal Rights People, you know, remember all that stupid thing. And That has infiltrated, of course, into the body of Christ. And many people and many women are ate up with it. Listen, I do not believe that the Bible teaches anywhere that God favors a man over the woman. I don't believe that for a moment. Quite the contrary. The Bible does teach, though, that God made man first, and then from man He formed the woman because God Himself in the Genesis account, declared that it was not good that man should be alone, and that he would find him a helper that was meet or fit for him. This is what God declared. But it doesn't mean that this particular position is subservient, but it's actually one of co-benevolence. However, I think one should note that God has created, and God said that He created the woman for the man. We're going to see that coming up here in verse 9. So as an authority question, you know, as I pointed out earlier, Paul was establishing a chain of command, and he stated clearly that the authority over, over man is Christ, and the authority over the woman is the man. The, and, and this brings up an interesting question. Over the years that I've been in the ministry, I've had many women come to me who were engaged in things. And let me give you an extreme example and I know it's extreme, but I had a lady one time come to me and here she was a registered nurse so she was an educated woman and had been a Christian for a long time. She had come to the Lord after she was married so it wasn't like she married a heathen on purpose. She didn't know any better. But she wound up to an unbeliever. This man And I know you're going to think this sounds crazy because I was in full-blown shock when I heard it at the time. This man was encouraging her and actually taking her out to the mall, wanting her to pick out somebody, some guy, and was encouraging them to try to bring this guy back to the house and engage in things that were so ungodly with somebody that they didn't even know. Now she had been in other churches and in other churches, the pastor had said that the women should always be in subjection to their own husbands, which is what the Bible says, okay? And she was going to go along with this, and I, and, but yet asked my, my opinion. I said, well, it ain't my opinion need to be concerned about. It's God's opinion, but listen to me, Don. And I took her here to this verse where Paul's talking about the issue of the man being in subjection or Christ being the authority over a man. I said, you're only to be in subjection as the man is in subjection to Christ. Now, when you have a husband who's not in subjection to Christ, then unfortunately many women are forced to jump the chain of command, if you will. This is why you find so many women in the church. Have you ever noticed how disproportionate most churches are when it comes to women and men? I mean, to deny that is absolute foolishness. Now, there are exceptions to the rule. The church I pastored was an exception to the rule for many years. It later on became that way. But in the beginning years, it was all men. It was all men. And then I prayed for God to send women, and he ain't finally answered. But it was all men for women. But that's an an extreme exception. But a lot of the women, and and because men have abdicated their role, because they do not allow themselves to be in subjection to Christ, because either they're not serving the Lord or whatever the case may be, women unfortunately wind up making this, this jump. But when you have women who are married, believers who are married to unbelievers, and we really just covered the chapter that Paul dealt with that, Are you to be in subjection to them? Well, you know, you're going to have to allow the Holy Spirit to discern because if he's asking you to do things that are ungodly, if he's asking you to put your relationship to Christ on the back burner because somehow you're supposed to be in subjection to your husband who's an unbeliever, and I'm stressing we're talking about unbelievers, it's only to be in subjection as long as he is in subjection to Christ and i don't think that the bible would have any believer engaging in things that are ungodly and putting christ on the back burner because some men because that would be more like slavery now wouldn't it that wouldn't really be much of a marriage i wouldn't think and i have seen marriages to be such where you have men who are overbearing men who are what's the word i'm looking for ogres so to speak you know and they just demand their way and they And of course, you know, Paul said, if the unbelieving, you know, if you're good and they want to stay, let them stay. But not to the point, you know, once again, where your your relationship with Christ is being uh, subjected to um, second place. Christ has to still maintain the preeminence in everything that we do, even in our marriage. Uh, But if the unbeliever depart, Paul said, let them depart. You know, a a, a brother or sister is not under obligation in such cases. So in this hierarchy, in this chain of command that Paul's been dealing with. You know, it, it's, it's the church is in subjection to, to Christ. Man is in subjection to, to, to Jesus. Jesus is in subjection to God. So, you know, if you have a husband and he's in subjection. Now, I had a lady ask me one time when we were teaching through this and she said, well, you know, what about winning your husband to the Lord? Well, absolutely, you want to win your husband to the Lord. Matter of fact, Timothy deals with that. He says, if any woman has a husband who does not obey the word, let her without the word, it means without preaching, win her husband with her chast conversation. So, you know, the bottom line, you always want to win him to Christ but some, sometimes that doesn't, it doesn't happen. So you just have to be savvy to that. And of course, you know, once again is he in subjection to Christ? What is he asking you to do? And is it affecting your walk with the Lord? So you've got to keep those things in mind. Paul deals with the issue also of coverings. Most of us realize that in an Eastern religion, women wore veils, and some just—you know—some of them would wear those veils just over their nose and around their ears and stuff uh, during that particular time. And others wore uh, veils that covered their whole body. Many of them do today. Matter of fact, when you look, and it's very prevalent in the Muslim uh, religion, that they wear what they call burkas, which is you know basically a whole body cover. You couldn't even tell whether it's a man or a woman. And the reason that they do that, and a lot of people don't understand it, especially during this particular time, the reason that women wore veils was because it was a sign of availability. If you didn't wear a veil, it meant that you were available. And this is what Paul is dealing with. Now, the Church of Corinth, when we started studying this, we we talked about there was a a temple of Aphrodite there. It was a very paganistic city. And the temple priestesses who were actually prostitutes never wore veils. Why? Because when they would go down into the city at night, they wanted to make sure that men knew that they were what? Available. And so this was the issue that Paul's dealing with. And so now he starts to talking about these things, whether or not a woman ought to be veiled. And so he's dealing with this cultural thing that's happening at this particular time. Now, no doubt, even in Eastern society, like I said, especially in Muslim societies, it's still happening. But no doubt, this was something that was going on here at the church of Corinth. Now, Paul stated that every man praying or prophesying, I think this is interesting to me, having his head covered dishonoreth his head. Now, when he says dishonoreth his head, he's talking about the authority. And of course, the authority over a man is who? It's Christ. So it's dishonoring Christ is what he's talking about. But he says that if he would pray with, that, with his head covered, that he would be dishonoring Christ. And this is interesting. When you put it in the context of Orthodox Judaism today, why? Because no Jew would pray without his head covered. Matter of fact, this is what, why we you know, wear yarmulkes, you know. And, it, and uh, so they wear yarmulkes because of the talus. And a lot of times if you're not wearing a talus under your clothes, we know what the talus is, right? It's the prayer shawl, for lack of a better description. And so if you're not wearing that, you wear a yarmulke. Matter of fact, if you go to Israel and you go to the wailing wall, they won't even let you in that area without your head being covered. And, and if you go to synagogue, you know, you're always going to have that thing on your head, and you're always going to have a hat on. And the lady asked me, she goes, well, I, she was talking about somebody had gotten upset about somebody wearing a hat in church. I always laughed about it, because I said, you know, it, it didn't bother me, because I said, you know, if, if you go to a synagogue, everybody, every man has a hat on. But, it, but, but just in contrast, look at what Paul says. Paul says if you prayed with, with a covering on your head, you're actually dishonoring God. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? What's, he, what, what's that say? It says that somehow we are dishonoring God if we do that. That's what it says. But in Judaism, once again, who only have part of the sacrifice, totally different sermon, and yet they walk in that way. It just, it's just interesting to me. When Paul's laying this out, look at verse 5. He says, but every woman that prayeth or prophesieth. And I, and ladies, you need to take note of that. Prayeth or prophesieth. Make note of that because it's going to be important here in a minute. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. Okay, now he's not, now once again, we're using the same English word meaning two entirely different things. He says if she's praying without her head covered, that's your, your actual head that it dishonoreth your head. He's not talking about this head the second time. He's talking about your husband. Okay? So if you pray with your head uncovered, he says you're dishonoring your husband. And he goes on. He says, because for that, it's even as one as if she was shaven. (laughs) Like like Sinead O'Connor. Remember her knucklehead to cut her hair off? Crazy. He says, for if a woman be not covered, let her also be shorn or shaven. But if it's a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. Okay. Because the head of the woman is the man. Or in this case, her husband. Paul's speaking of dishonoring her husband, just like I said. So in a sense, if she prays unveiled with her head uncovered, she's dishonoring her husband. This is what Paul says. It's evident in the context when I when you when you think about the church at Corinth, what Paul was saying was that when a woman who was married, okay, would go to, to, to the synagogue or go to the church, and, and and she was going in there without her head covered, she was looking like one of the temple priestesses who was available and thereby she was dishonoring her husband because now she looked like a... It, ladies, think of it in this, in this category. Take your wedding ring off, okay, and go somewhere. You understand what I'm saying? That's, that's dishonoring your husband. Why? Because now you're trying, you're appearing, even if you're not mean to do it, you're appearing as though you're single. Why? Because you've removed your ring. You, do you get what I'm saying? Do you know, Make sense? You know, it's, it's, I remember years ago, you know, and I know a lot of people wonder why I have tattoos and, and why, and let me give you the quickie on it. I've always wore a wedding ring. My wife knows it. I always did. And, you know, the thing is, is that when I play guitar, in back, you know, years, I played professionally for so many years. When I played, uh, because of how I play, my style, of course, I don't do it during worship. You guys have never seen me play. Uh, but, you know, when I was playing with, with bands and stuff, it would rack on the bottom of the frets. And so it would make a clicking noise. Because I had to reach way up and on top of the, and I didn't like it. So what would I do? I would take it off and I would I would place it on something, of course, with all intention of putting it back on after a gig or even after a worship session. Many times I had deacons come up to me and say, Hey, brother, pastor, you put this back on. It's like, oh, thank you. And so uh, I remember one time I was riding with my daughter. And I was, this complaint came up, and my daughter suggests, she goes, well, there's one way you could make sure you never had to worry about it. So what, she goes, get it tattooed on. And I went, really? I never thought of that. And about praying about it, you know. And so, but I did, and that's what I did. But my point is, is that when you take the ring off, it gives that appearance. In the same sense, you know, a woman praying at this particular time without her head covered was dishonoring her husband because it made her look available. This is what Paul's talking about. Because a lot of people have gone, well, it dishonors her head. And they just didn't understand really uh, what he was talking about. But really, this is what he was talking about. Now, I do think it's interesting that Paul talks up here. Now, look at verse 5 up there. Just real quick, I want to point something else to you. He says that every woman that prays or prophesies with her head, you know, notice praise and prophesy. Now, when we get over to chapter 14, and we're, and we're coming up on that pretty quick, Paul's going to make a statement to let your women keep silent in the church. Okay? In a lot of churches through the years, once again, this is where ignorance comes in. Because they don't understand how the Jewish churches, because they all came from the Jews in the beginning, even if they wound up in Gentile, I mean, they all kind of took those traditions. And even many of them to this day, if you came into a synagogue, uh, not all of them, because some of them don't do the orthodox thing, but a lot of them would be totally separate. Women on one side, men on the other. Okay? Just the way they do it. And some churches still do these kind of things. But Paul makes it clear here. Now, some have made the argument that when Paul was talking in chapter 14, he was talking about women, because Paul does go on to say, if they have any question, let them ask their own husband or their husband at home. But what he wasn't prohibiting, of course, was the issue of women totally being silent. That is, they weren't allowed to pray or prophesy, because here he says that if they were praying or prophesying, you see what I'm saying? So there was no total prohibition against women. But eventually when we get to Timothy, and of course, or excuse me, we've already been through Timothy. You know, Timothy points out very quickly, uh, or Paul does to Timothy, that he didn't you know, permit a woman to, to teach or to pastor, really, is what he was talking about. And it's a whole other issue. But my only point being was that women were not totally silenced in the church. When we get to chapter 14, we'll make a cross-reference back to this. Because here he says that every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered. So obviously they were allowed, at the bare minimum, they were allowed to pray and to prophesy. So that's an interesting thing to me. But it was really that issue of just allowing you know, women going in and covering their head or not covering their head. Why were they doing it? Many people have speculated that because of the gospel of grace, a lot of the women, and rightly so, had decided that they had the liberty to do so. And they did have the liberty to do so, but in their city, in their culture, it made them look as though they were dishonoring their husband. And Paul was actually addressing that. Look at verse 7, he said, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image of the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. If you're making notes, you need to make a note of that. Because of the angels. Why why and what did Paul mean when he said because of the angels? Up to this particular point, everything Paul has said I think is pretty easy to understand really if you just have a grip on the cultural situation there. But this particular verse has been beat around by theologians for centuries. It just has. What did he mean by that? One suggestion is that those who believe in the Nephilim, I'm not going to get into that tonight, but if, if they hold that evil angels which fell, you know, that somehow if women were uncovered, that they would appear to these angels as available. The problem with this uh, <laughs> interpretation is that the New Testament, uh, where the issue of angels are mentioned, it's never in a sense of angels being fallen, not New Testament-wise. So that's bunk. The other position is uh, because the Bible says that uh, as we're gathered and the angels of God are gathered together, and it gives us that, that that picture, that because angels are of a rank and, and, and you know, they have rank and, and position, that somehow they like it when we do the same thing, that somehow we're walking according to authority and those type of things. The truth is, is that nobody knows what Paul meant by this verse. I have no idea what he means by this. Because she ought to have power on her head because of the angels. The truth is, nobody knows. I have no idea. So this is one of those ones in the back of your Bible you want to mark down, ask Paul when I get there. You know what I'm saying? Write that one down. That's one that's on the top of my list, too. I'm going to ask, what, do you, what did you mean by that? I mean, because that has thrown every... As a young Christian, and let me, let me just give this to you, because I, I, it really blessed me. You know, when you're a young Christian and you find a Bible teacher that you really like, and of course, with me, uh, it, the first one was Gillette Doggett, who led me to Chuck Smith, and I started listening to Chuck. You tend to think that they know everything when you're young. You do. As you get older, you realize they don't because they admit that they don't. But when you first start listening to them, you think that they know everything. They've got it all down. Every T's crossed, every day, and understand they've got it all. And I remember going through Corinthians with Chuck, and I remember when he got to this, and he read that verse, you know, because of the angels. It was the longest pause I had ever heard him take. And because I was on radio at the time, I remember thinking, oh my, boy, if that was on the air, boy, they would, they would be editing that, you know, to get that big long because he would, and then he went, what did Paul mean by that? Another long pause. And he went, I don't know. I have no idea. I was like, what? 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 What And I had a blank in my note. I mean, no, you can't do that to me. You got to tell me what that means. And he had no idea. And he stuck by that until he went home to be with the Lord. Another thing that Chuck Smith told me I'll pass on to you. Because it's true. Where the Bible's silent, stay silent. When the Bible speaks, speak. But when the Bible's silent, just stay silent. Because if you speak and the Bible's silent on a particular issue, then you're conjecturing. And you're apt to put words in God's mouth that He didn't mean. And He doesn't like that. God doesn't like that. If you ever doubt that, go read Jeremiah. Eventually, we'll get to it. So this is one of those things where it does say, but it really doesn't explain. And you know what? It's not the things of the Word of God that I don't know that bother me. It's the it's the most of it that I do know that get me, and that's all that matters. So you know, this is one of those little things that we just don't know. And anybody that tells you that they do is speculating at best. And you know what? You're allowed to speculate, but be careful. Look at verse 11. Nevertheless, he says, Neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. I love that. You know, we got to have each other. You know, can't, it can't be without it. He says, For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. You know, as far as God is concerned, we are on equal ground. That's, I like that. that. That's what Paul says. We're on equal ground. We we are both necessary for the creation and the sustaining of each other. You know, even though my mother is of the lineage of Eve, who came from the side of Adam, I came from her. And everybody here and everybody listening to me had a mother. And you came from your mother. And so, you know, when we look at other religions, and this is why I love the fact that God you know, equalizes man and woman. I really do. And especially in marriage. You know, it's, 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 a, uh, it's a partnership thing. Now, granted, there are differences of position. That's an authority thing. It's different. But as far as the way God sees us, we're equal. But you look at a lot of religions, and especially when it comes to Islam, and I know I point to that because it's so prevalent today, the, the subservient position that they put women in is absolutely atrocious. You go to Saudi Arabia, women can't even drive over there. You know, they are just looked at as second-rate citizens. I mean, in some places, they're able to put their wives to death without even a trial. I mean, you know, this, some of that stuff's crazy. Why? Because in their religion, that's the way it is. and it's just, But that's not the way it is with God. You know, Jesus Christ is an entirely different situation. But as far as He's concerned, we're on equal ground. We, we though, that's every one of us, were created by birth. So... We, uh, our mothers definitely are the lineage from Eve, but still we had to come from her. So verse 13, Judging yourselves, he said, Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Like I told you, when we get to chapter 14, Paul's going to say a few things and we'll, we'll come back to it. So he's telling them to judge that. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? You notice that's a question? Make note of it that it's a question. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her for her hair is given to her for a covering. Many moons ago, back when I was a young pup, and the Lord was really knocking on me, the first lady that really ministered to me was Adela Matthews. And she still lives in Oklahoma. And uh, I, was, I was so uh, blessed one time because after I'd been pastor in Calvary Chapel for many years, uh, After 30-some years of never not knowing what happened, her son and me and him played guitar together. Uh, We were best friends for years, and he found me. And I got to go to Oklahoma City, and I went there and and visited him. And then I said, you know, go take me to your mom. You know, I got to see Della. And Della was the greatest mother in the world. She really was. Not that mine wasn't, mine was too, but not like Della. Della was one of those women, when I spent the night over at Randy's, you would get up in the morning, not to bacon and eggs, but the french fries. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Della, Della made french fries for us. I mean, she was one of those type of moms. So we loved her. But she loved the Lord. She just loved the Lord. And she took, took me to a tent revival. It's actually a long story, but I, that's where I gave my life to the Lord. And, you know, for years I just always remembered her and 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 but here's here's what she did though, and she meant well. That's why I wanted to say, don't forget, I love this woman. I still do. But I remember one time I was sitting there in the house, and of course I had given my life to Christ, and she was trying to coach you know to coach me along as best she could. But I had you know it was 1971, I think something like that, and I had this little bit of hair that was just over my ears, you know, just barely, you know. I was hoping for something longer, but really it was just barely over my ears. And I'll never forget Della, bless her heart, she says, you need to get a haircut. And she was dead serious, and I went, well, it's not really, it's just, no, you need to get a haircut. Your hair's getting long. I said, oh, well, you know, it's, I'm thinking about, you know, no, no. And what did she do? She drugged me to this verse. She drugged me to this verse. Doth not nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a shame unto him? Mm and convinced me that that was right. And I was infuriated because I had been listening to another Bible teacher who I knew, and I was, in, I was infuriated at him because he didn't tell me. So I went to, to him and I said, well, how come you never, you know, here I'm in rebellion against God. You know, I mean, keep in mind I'm 13 at the time, okay? But I wanted to do what was right. And, and he was like, what are you talking about? I'll go look at my hair, I gotta get a haircut what are you talking about? And I took him to this verse, and he goes, oh, well, keep reading. Keep reading. During the 60s and 70s, you remember the Jesus Movement, right? Many of the Jesus Movement kids who came to Christ by the thousands at that time had hair down here, okay? And, and, and a lot of the radio shows, you know, sometimes people would, would their main objection was, look at those, you know, they, they look like hippies, you know, they got hair and and they would go to this verse. And that's sad. Because you'll notice it's a question. Paul says, does not nature itself teach you if a man have long hair? It's a shame unto him. But if a woman have long hair, it's a glory to her. For her hair is given her for a covering. The fact is it's a rhetorical question. And the answer is obvious. Now, now think about this for a minute. Now some have tried to say, some Bible teachers, have tried to say, when Paul uses the word nature here, that he's talking about tradition. What well, doesn't say that. You can't get that even in the Greek. It just doesn't happen. No, Paul's actually talking about nature. He's not talking about tradition, because their argument is, as well, tradition says, men always had short hair, and women have long hair. Well, common sense would say, what era and what society are you talking about? Because even today it's not that way in some societies. So it can be a cultural thing. I mean, if you even go back to our country in the 1700s, right? You see a lot of the old preachers, uh, one of them by the name of John Wesley and his brother, uh, what was it? John. John. I always want to say James John. or something. John Wesley, George Whitfield, and so many others wore wigs that when you looked at them, appeared to be long hair. And not only was it long hair, but it was in direct contradiction to what Paul said that they should be doing. And that is not praying to God with their head covered because they stood at the pulpit and actually wore a wig and prayed and prophesied and did everything with their head covered. I always thought it was interesting because when you read it it is the question that Paul meant it to be. Does not nature itself teach you? Well, what does nature teach me? I don't know whether you've ever actually looked at nature when it comes to animals because the glory of God is exhibited in the things in which He has created. The Bible says even His eternal glory and Godhead can be seen in the things that He's created. And when you look at nature, for the most part it is the male who actually has the longest hair. It is the male who has the most beautiful plume. It is the male who has those things. And so what Paul's trying to do is to balance it out. These guys were going, well, if my woman can't pray uncovered, if the man has to have his head uncovered, and and then Paul says, well, what does nature teach you? And then he says this, and we're going to close with this in verse 16. He says, but if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. And I like that because that's the bottom line. And I remember the man that I went to and I was complaining as a 13-year-old that he hadn't warned me of the dangers of having my hair over my ears because I was in danger of hellfire fire at the time. He took me to verse 16. He said, read on, son. If any man wants to be contentious, if you want to argue about it, is what Paul says. We have no such custom. Neither the churches of God. And sometimes it's that simple. Sometimes Paul said, you know, he started off or ended chapter 10 by saying he didn't give an offense to anybody. It wasn't his purpose. He actually was looking for the profit of many. That why? So that they might be saved. What he was encouraging the women and the men at Cornish to do was to at least be sensitive to the things around them. Even today, if I was trying to win the Muslims to the Lord, which is not my particular calling, I mean, I'll witness to him if I run into one, but I'm not going over there. Some people are called to that. But if my wife went there, I would not go there with her dressed in her liberty. You you see what I'm saying? I would have her dressed in a way that was not offensive to them. Why? That I might win them to the Lord. Because if you start off by simply offending somebody, then they just cut you off. They don't listen to you. And that's really what Paul was dealing with. And so often within the Christendom, we can pull something like this out of its context and go, oh, and here's a new rule. Women have. I've seen women who will not pray unless they have. Maybe some of you ladies, if you've ever been to holiness churches, the extreme Wesleyans, man, they, they always do. They have little little doilies, what I call it. They put them on their head, they pass them out at the, at the door when you come in if you don't have one. It's like yarmulkes. <laughs> for ladies, there you go. What you have card, you know? But it can be a cultural thing. But Paul says, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Lord, we thank you. And we just ask, Lord Father, that you would help us to discern, Lord, when something is genuinely, Lord Father, just a custom and not to elevate that to some law or some rule or regulation that somehow you have put on us, Lord. Father. we knew you took care of that stuff with Jesus. But Lord Father, we do desire to win people to Christ. We do desire to win people to your kingdom and to present the good news of the gospel to them. So Lord Father, we pray that you would just help us, Lord Father, put us in those places and around those people that we might share the good news of Jesus Christ. We love you so much. We thank you, Lord Father. Help us, Lord Father, especially during this era that we live in, this time of the end that, Lord Father, we would be more sensitive to not to offend, although it's hard today, but not to purposely do it, Lord. We know that when your word is preached, Lord Father, sometimes people just get offended. But, Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit would go beforehand and that anyone who would listen to this broadcast, Lord Father, would simply see their need for Jesus and accept him for what he has done for them. We love you and we thank you. We ask you this in Jesus' name.